We're going to dip into God's Word now before we hear from Luke. Um, should be up on the screen, um, or you can follow along in your Bibles there. But if you don't have a Bible today, there are some in the baskets down the row. You can read along with that. And if you don't actually own a Bible, that's our gift to you to take with you today. So let's read from Genesis 20. Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Gatesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gerar, and there Abraham said of his wife Sarah, She is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She's a married woman. Now Abimelech had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? He did not say to me, did he not say to me, she is my sister? And didn't she also say, he is my brother? I've done nothing, I've done, I've done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience. And so I have kept you from sinning against me. This is why I did not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all who belong to you will die. Early the next morning, Abimelech summoned all his officials, and when he told them all that had happened, they were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said, What have you done to us? How have I wronged you that you have brought such a great guilt upon me and my kingdom? You have done things to me that should never be done. And Abimelech asked Abraham, what was your reason for doing this? Abraham replied, I said to myself, there is surely no fear of God in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father through not of my mother, though not of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God had me wander from my father's household, I said to her, this is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech brought sheep and cattle and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham, and he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, My land is before you. Live wherever you like. To Sarah he said, I'm giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. This is to cover the offense against you before all who are with you. You are completely vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female slaves, so they could have children again. For the Lord had kept all the women in Abimelech's household from conceiving because of Abraham and Sarah, Abraham's wife, Sarah. As I sat down on Monday to look at today's passage, I had a moment that I have most Monday mornings. I read the passage, and I thought to myself, what on earth am I going to say about this? It's one of those passages you look at and you think, my goodness, my God, help me with this. I don't know what I'm going to say. And so at that point, I sit down and I start to pray. And it's a good thing to do, isn't it? I started to pray and I prayed for, for quite a while. And then when I finished praying, I was really relieved I did. Because the second time I sat down to look at the passage, I realized there's a lot in this message today that could change our lives if we allow it to impact our hearts. Now, it's one of the things I love about this book, the Bible. It's an amazing book. It's not a relic. It's not a dust collector. It's not something the Gideons put in a hotel room and that's about it. This is the living, active Word of God. And so this book, as we read it, it's not just a manuscript that's been written down. It's not just a historical document, although it is that. It's God's living Word that He speaks through. 
And if you read this book on a regular basis and the Holy Spirit works in your heart, it will turn your life upside down and inside out. And I can tell you that's true because it's happened with me. And so as we open this book, whether it's in our bedroom, whether it's in an MCG small group, or whether it's when we're gathered together corporately like we are today, we should do so with great expectation that today the living God wants to speak his living word into our lives and hearts. So is there anyone here today that's expectant? Four people are expectant today, and if there's a little mustard seed of faith, God can work. And so for the rest of you, be very grateful that four people are expectant today, because I think that God's going to speak to us, and I really pray and hope that he will. If you were here last week, um, you would know that we've uh, been continuing a series through the book of Genesis. Uh, It's a series through the first book of the Bible, and it's called Beginnings. And today we're up to chapter 20, and if you were here last week, you would have seen in Genesis chapter 19, God's judgment that was poured out on two wicked and unrepentant cities called Sodom and Gomorrah. And as we read through the story, we saw that God judged those cities and they were completely wiped out. It was a tragic moment in biblical history. But that was last week. If you're here next week, here's a spoiler alert. If you don't like surprises, just block your ears now and say, la, 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 la. But next week, we come to a magnificent point in the book of Genesis. It's the moment that Isaac is born. And it's a very significant moment. It's significant because in Genesis chapter 12, when we're all the way back there, you might remember that God made some incredible promises to a guy called Abram. He promised him that he would make his name great, that he would become a great nation. He said, your descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And he said, through you, Abram, through that nation, all nations on earth will be blessed. Now, the problem is that that's been a number of years since he made that promise. And at this point in the story, um, Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90 and they still had no children and therefore no descendants. And it would appear, understandably so, that they started to lose hope in the promise of God. But in Genesis chapter 21, Sarah finally gives birth to her firstborn son, Isaac. They say that practice makes perfect. And years and decades of practicing, and finally God opens Sarah's womb, and they have a child. And so we've got these two contrasts in the surrounding chapters. We've got over here this tragic story where because of the sin of the people, a city is destroyed. But in the next chapter, in chapter 21, we have, because of the faithfulness of God, a nation being born. And so it would be very easy for us to step from the tragedy of chapter 19 all the way over to the triumph of chapter 21, but today we find ourselves kind of in between in Genesis chapter 20. And what we see in this chapter is the sin of the central character called Abraham, and the sin of his life actually ties us back to the sin we saw in Sodom and Gomorrah, but in the midst of his sin, we see the faithfulness of God, which kind of triumphantly propels us into chapter 21. And so we're in between. And so the question must be asked, what is this story here for? Well, what we know is that it's here for a reason. And we know that from 2 Timothy chapter 3.16, it says, All Scripture. Can you repeat that after me? All Scripture. All Scripture is God-breathed. And it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I saw an interview this week with a guy from the UK called Piers Morgan. And I remember that name because he must be bigger and wiser than God because he said it's about time we look back at the Bible and make some amendments to get it up to the culture of our day. 
<laughs> now, the problem for Piers Morgan, of course, is that God's eternal and he's not. And so his word is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the eternal God in all that he does and all that he is. And so while Piers Morgan will be here and gone, God's word will remain eternal forever. And so all scripture is God-breathed. He breathed his word, and it's been written down for us. And we read why. It's been written down to teach us, to rebuke us, to correct us, and to train us in righteousness so that we will be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so you must know as a Christian, you are called by God and he's prepared advance, in advance works for you to do. And so today, as we open God's word, the purpose is to correct, rebuke, train, and to better prepare you for the work that he's called you to. And so today we should have great expectation that he's going to do that. And so after praying over chapter 20, there were three things that really stood out for me that God challenged me in. And I pray that as we relook at this story today, he'll also challenge you in. And the first one is this, but sin cripples. But the gospel overcomes. Last week we saw how sin crippled a whole city and it was wiped out. And sin cripples in our life. And I could have made that the dot point today. But we may leave here thinking that sin is crippling and we may feel paralyzed to do nothing for God. But today I want to add the bit to the sentence that sin cripples, but the gospel overcomes. In Abram's life, we see the repetitive and reoccurring nature of sin. Have you ever had a case of deja vu? Anyone had deja vu before? I had a mild case of it this week with something that Kim said. But deja vu is that bizarre thing that happens in our brain when in the midst of something happening for the first time, you have this overwhelming feeling that you've experienced it before. I had this experience quite profoundly in 2010 as I watched St Kilda lose the grand final. And I thought, this feels like this has happened before. And then I remembered it was actually the 2009 grand final, which we also lost. And so it wasn't deja vu at all. It was just what it's like to barrack for St Kilda. And I realized that I come across bitter when I talk about St Kilda. And, and there's a good reason for that. I am. And so we'll just continue to move on. But I think all of us have experienced deja vu, not just the St Kilda losing grand finals type of deja vu, but the deja vu that we're all used to. As we read this passage, you can be excused for thinking that you were experiencing a case of deja vu. Now, before we get to that, let's start at verse 1 of the passage, chapter 20. And we see that Abraham is on the move. And he's moving from a place called Mamre to the region of the Negev between Kadesh and Shur, which is the foothills near Gaza, and it's hostile territory. He's going into hostile territory. And it's interesting to note in the narrative that there is no place within the narrative where there's any instruction from God for Abraham to be on the move. And yet he's on the move. And not only is he on the move, but he's leaving the place where he just had an encounter with God. Found himself in Mamre. God had appeared to him face to face. That had this amazing conversation as he pleaded for the city. And so he'd encountered God. And there's nowhere in the passage that says that he should be on the move, but he's left that place and now he's on the move. And he's gone to this place where the Philistines are aggressively opposed to God. It's not like, it's not unlike Lot, his nephew, in the previous chapter, who settled in that place called Sodom, which was full of wicked and rebellious people. Abraham's doing a similar thing now, and he also finds himself in a wicked and rebellious area. And like Lot, it's not long before Abraham finds himself in trouble. In fact, if you skim down, you'll find that it starts in verse 2. And here's what it says. And there Abraham said of his wife, Sarah, she is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah 
and took her. It feels a little bit like deja vu, but let me assure you it's not. Because if you remember all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, virtually the exact same thing happened with the exact same two people. Let me read what Genesis 12 says. When Abraham found himself in hostile territory back then, he was in Egypt. And this is what it says in Genesis chapter 12. Now there was a famine in the land and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know that you are a beautiful woman. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Verse 13, say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman, and when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. I wonder if you've seen the movie Taken, a movie of Liam Neeson, where his daughter is kidnapped and sold into sex slavery, and then the second one, Taken 2, is that he just shows he's the most unlucky guy in the world because his wife now and his daughter are both taken once again um, and try to be sold off into sex slavery. And you might not remember the, the movie, but you might remember the quote of Liam Neeson. I can't really do his voice, but he says this. He says, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. But if you are looking for a ransom, I can tell you that I have no money. But what I do have are a particular set of skills, skills I have acquired over a very long career, Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let her go now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you and I will kill you. I've been practicing that line for the future boyfriends of my daughters. (laughs) And I've almost perfected it. This is like looking at the movie Taken. This lady's taken into a place she doesn't want to be, but unlike the movie Taken, instead of her loved ones being quite annoyed about it, this time it's her husband actually pushing her off and saying, hey, tell him you're my sister. Go and become his wife and that will be good for me. Not sure about you, but it'll be good for me. They'll look after me as a result. In the first instance, Pharaoh was punished when God sent disease upon him and his entire household because of his relationship with Sarah, and as a result, let her and Abram go. But this time, before Abimelech can even touch Sarah, God warns him in a dream and says, you are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. And when he repents, God saves him from stepping into that sin. Now, we need to consider what's going on here because I think the lie is bad enough, but it probably isn't the worst part of this story. Because Abram's not just saying, hey, go and tell a little white lie to get me out of trouble. He's not just saying, hey, um, say you're my little sis. What he's really saying is to his wife, if you really love me, you will allow yourself to be taken by another man as his wife. It's a shocking way to treat your wife. If you can't imagine someone doing something that horrific, then consider that what we're reading, this is not the first time it's happened in his life. He did it with Pharaoh in Egypt. And he caused all sorts of trouble and now he's doing it again. What we're reading about in this passage is reoccurring sin in his life. And it's easy for us to look at him and think, how how could you do that? You idiot. You know, you've done it again. This is the same thing. Almost exactly that you did years ago. You're now doing it to your wife again, you idiot. But the moment we start to think like that, I'm sure that you may feel the prompting of the Holy Spirit in your own heart. Because this reoccurring sin thing, let's just say it's, it's not unique to Abraham, it's an issue for you and me as well. 
It's easy to look at Abraham and think, how could you make the same mistake again? But I think deep down we know that it kind of parallels our own experience when it comes to reoccurring sin. Can you think of the things in your own life this morning that you've said to yourself, never again, never again will I do that, never again will I make that mistake, and yet you find yourself back in the same predicament over and over again. Maybe it's in the area of lust in your life. Maybe it's anger. I know for me that's been one I've wrestled through. I am not an angry person in our house with our wife and kids, with my wife and kids. Uh, I'm not an angry person uh, at church. But when I step over that demonic little white line on the edge of the basketball court, I feel something come upon me. And there's an anger that rises up, particularly when the refs don't know what they're doing. And I get very frustrated. And I often find myself back in that place. And I have, have come to the point where I'm a lot better than I used to be. I no longer get ejected from stadiums, but I still feel myself getting a little bit angry. And I think at the end of the game, you idiots, you're here again. Back to the same thing. I pray about it before the game. I still feel angry. And it's something I'm working on in my own life. Maybe for you it's gossip or negativity or lying or laziness or greed or bitterness. You can fill in the gap in your own life. But the big problem is this. And when we find ourselves making the same mistake over and over again, going back to that reoccurring sin, in that place, not only does it displease the God who we profess to worship and serve, but it also cripples our lives and our relationships as a sense of regret and shame and hopelessness and condemnation comes over us like a wave. And we feel crippled. How could I be here again? I want to tell you today that the grip of sin can be overcome by the power of the gospel. A couple of weekends I've been asked to go and speak at Beaconsfield Baptist Church at their night service, and the passage I've been given to preach on is Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 to 17. It starts with these three words. It says, put to death. It's a great way to start the sermon, isn't it? Put to death. And then it goes on. Therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. This is what we saw in the previous chapter, Genesis 19, this reoccurring sin that they would not repent of. And the judgment of God came on Sodom and Gomorrah. We are in a season right now where we are living in the grace of Jesus Christ, but a day is coming where he will once again judge the living and the dead and we will stand before him and we'll give an account for our lives and the only thing that will remedy us from the power and the grip of sin is the power and blood of Jesus Christ and putting our faith in him. In this passage it goes on, it says, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves Of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other. That was Abraham's problem. Since you have taken off your old self with its practices and you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of its creator. At Easter time, I told you the story of having to have our dog put down a couple of years ago. A 15-year-old dog uh, riddled with arthritis. And uh, it was a sad day. And when that happened, I went into the vet. And they shaved her paw and they took out a needle and they put it into her paw and they pressed in the drug, uh, often referred to as the green dream. And uh, at that moment, she started to drift off to sleep for the last time. And it was a sad moment, but it was a very peaceful moment. When Paul uses the words in this passage where he says, put to death there in Colossians, I don't think he's thinking of the green dream. 
He lived in a culture where people were put to death in the most brutal ways. He lived in a culture of beheadings and crucifixion, where death was brutal. And so when he says, put to death those sinful parts of our character, he's actually talking about a ruthlessness that we often don't apply when it comes to the sin in our own lives. It's a literally a life or death decision. He is encouraging, maybe even commanding us to put to death the sin that brings death into our lives. And so we can put that to death or we can be put to get death spiritually with these sins in our lives. But the truth is that even though we understand that, many of us struggle with reoccurring sin. Some of you may come from families where sin seems to reoccur throughout the generations. It started with your great-grandfather and great-grandmother and your grandfather and grandmother and then your parents and then you and now it's being passed on to your kids and and maybe you think well maybe that's just us that's just who we are there's just this sin in our lives that reoccurs but I want to tell you today that's a a life in the pit of hell I want to tell you today that God is in the business of redeeming and transforming our lives and when he saves us he can do supernatural things in our lives and if you're a Christian in this place it doesn't matter what's happened in the generations that have gone the bible says the old's gone the new has come and so you now have the opportunity to be the one that God uses to break that pattern of sin over your family tree and set a whole new pattern of living for generations to come what a wonderful opportunity it is to stand in the power of God and say it stops with me stops with me. It's a powerful thing. It's not about striving more. That'll never work. I guarantee your grandparents and your parents and all that, they probably tried striving more. That'll never work. It's about relying more on the power of God in your life. When you accept Jesus as the Lord of your life, at that very moment, you receive the Holy Spirit. And the Word of God says, He is our helper. He is our counselor every day. He works in our hearts. He transforms our lives from the inside out to conquer sin, not just just by taking off the old way of life, but by putting on the new way of life, empowered to live by Him and for Him for the whole, by the Holy Spirit. And so I want to sort of highlight today that sin cripples, but in the gospel we can overcome. The second thing I notice in this passage is that fear cripples, but faith overcomes. In this part of Abraham's life, he got into trouble because his fear was greater than his faith. He told Sarah to say that she was his sister because he was afraid of the culture he was immersed in. We are immersed in a culture that's becoming more and more antagonistic towards the gospel. And the question for our lives is, will we live in fear or will we live in faith? Because fear is really the symptom of a core issue, and the core issue is unbelief. If Abraham trusted God, he would have recognized that God was able to protect him and Sarah in order for his promise to come to pass, but his fear of man was greater than his faith in God. When Abimelech realized that he'd been deceived by Abraham, you can imagine he was pretty upset. And he asked three questions. The questions are what, how, and why. What have you done? How have I wronged you that you would do this to me? And why have you done this? And they're all very good questions. But when we dig down to the root cause, we find that the answer of all of them, or the root cause of all of them, was actually fear in Abraham's life. In verse 10, it says, Abimelech asked Abraham, what was your reason for doing this? Abraham replied, I said to myself, there is surely no fear of God in this place. In a strange sense of irony, the fear of God Uh, lacking in that place it was was actually lacking more in his life than it was lacking in that place 
And he says, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not my mother. And she became my wife. And so there is some truth to what Abraham is saying. It's kind of like a a half-truth. But a half-truth, when spoken to deceive one, actually equals a full lie. And so he's lying here to deceive Abimelech. And he also blames God. He said, when God made me wander from my father's household, I said to her, this is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. Ironically, he blamed the Philistines by claiming there was no fear of God. But the real issue was that Abraham was crippled by his fear of man. And in a sad reality, the fear of God or the respect of God was greater in this pagan king than it was in this so-called hero of faith. One thing I've noticed in life is that we seem to make poor decisions when we make decisions from a place of uh, fear. When our fear overcomes our faith, we seem to make really poor decisions. And there's many people, including Christians, who walk around their whole lives constantly gripped by fear, and it's crippling. This week I read a blog by a well-respected pastor who used to pastor in this region. His name's Mark Connor, and he was at City Life. He's just done a series of blogs on the topic of worry. And I read one this week, and it was titled, Why Worry? And I want to read it to you today. He says, Why Worry? Ask yourself, what am I worried about? Often worry becomes this dark cloud of vague concern that hovers over our mind. I've seen this over and over again in people's lives. I've experienced it in my own, where they worry. It becomes like a dark cloud over their life. They worry about their finances. They worry about their relationships. They worry about a vision. They worry about a job. They worry about their future. And this dark cloud comes over them. It's almost like their personality completely changes. But he says... That's why it pays to define your worries. Make a list. Get them all out on paper so you can have a good look at them. And then this is the bit I like the most. He said, research indicates this, that 40% of all of our worries will never happen. Four out of ten worries you have will never happen. Three or 30% are in the past and we can't do anything about them. And so there's another three out of ten that we can't do anything about. He says 12% are about health. And worry makes our health worse. 10% of our worries worries are about minor or petty things. And so therefore, only 8% of the things the average person worries about are what we could call legitimate. And half of that 4% are beyond our control. So studies tell us that 96% of what we worry about is not worth worrying about. It's a waste of time and energy. He goes on to say, have you ever used a shopping trolley with one wheel that didn't work? It's so annoying. It's squealing and you're irritated and annoyed and it saps your joy and your energy. He says, well, that's what one negative emotion such as worry does to your inner world. Think about it. Why worry about the unimportant, the unlikely and the irrelevant? Mark Connor is a very wise man, but Jesus was wiser. And Mark Connor is really only thinking Jesus' thoughts after him. And Jesus says it like this. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any, and this is the the pivotal sentence right here, can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? 
Can anyone add a single hour to their life by worrying? It's a rhetorical question. The answer, of course, is no, but I think it is possible to subtract quite a few by worrying. He says, why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these flowers. That is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire. Will he not much more clothe you, ye of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Who knows that's true? Each day has enough trouble of its own. And so don't worry. 96% of our worry is not worth worrying about, and yet we're often crippled by the what-if questions of life. What if? I find myself having these fears regularly. I have three daughters. That's enough to scare the heck out of anyone, isn't it? What if they end up with someone, what if they end up somewhere that's not safe? What if they end up with a guy who doesn't love them and love God like we do and I go to jail when I strangle him? (laughs) I have a four-year-old son with diabetes. What is going to happen in his future? There's days when I go to his bedroom and he's slept in and I think, what if he's not breathing in there? What if something happens to our son? These are things that could easily cripple my life if I didn't keep bringing them back to God. It's the same with the vision of the church. It feels like since we started, we've taken kind of many steps of faith. And some of them have been really big steps of faith, and God has been so faithful. But as we continue, it feels like the steps are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And the bigger they are, the more we have to stretch, the more uncomfortable and painful they are, right? like it is right now. And we've got to ask ourselves the question, in the stretch, when it's uncomfortable and painful and unfamiliar, are we going to respond in fear or in faith? Because it's often in this stretching zone that we find ourselves asking the what-if questions of life. Some days I wake up inspired and I pray to God and I feel like my prayers could move mountains. Yes, God can do all things. With a mustard seed of faith, God can turn our community upside down. God is an amazing God. Nothing's impossible with our God and I feel really spiritual on those days. And then there's the other days where I go to pray and the fears just creep into my mind and I feel crippled by the what-if questions. What if God doesn't show up? What if I can't lead this? What if we've heard wrong? What if we fail? And every time I get to that crippling place in my mind, I've got to replace those what-if questions with a whole bunch of better what-if questions. Questions like this. What if God shows up most powerfully in the steps of faith? What if God could do a miracle in our midst, in our lives, in our community, in our circumstances? What if God could turn this community upside down through the power of the gospel? And what if he's placed us here to be a big part in that? What if our faith was to overcome our fear? What could God do in our midst? Abraham was fearful rather than faithful. But I'm happy to report that he learned his lesson. And next week, we're going to see a great test in his life where we read the story of his son, Isaac. Isaac, his son, was the answer to their prayers. 
He was the answer to the promise of God that his son was born and he would lead to many descendants and many promises of God coming to pass. And yet, a few years later, God tests Abraham by asking him to sacrifice that same son. The fulfillment of the promise, the answer to the prayer. He asks him to sacrifice his son on an altar and Abraham passes the test by showing that he was willing to trust God in that circumstance, even if it was the most difficult thing he was ever asked to do. Fear cripples, but faith overcomes. The third and final thing today is this, that our foolishness cripples, but God's faithfulness to his promise overcomes. Abraham makes some massive mistakes in his life, but God's faithfulness overcomes even in the midst of his failure. In this passage alone, there are a number of massive mistakes. First of all, he lied by claiming Sarah was his sister, even if it was factual, it wasn't true. He mistreated his wife. Let's not skip over that. Twice he allowed his wife to be taken by another man. You know that saying, happy wife, happy life? I don't think it was invented in Abraham's day. It's a shocking treatment of a woman that he should have been willing to lay his life down for as her protector, her lover, and her friend. Not only that, but he blamed God for his troubles. As I said before in verse 13, if you hadn't have taken me away from my father's household, none of this would have happened. And so we see sin after sin after sin just in this passage of scripture in Abraham's life. And when we sin against God, there are always consequences. I can only imagine the consequences in Abraham's life, but I imagine um, palming your wife off to another man multiple times would probably not be good for your marriage relationship. So I'd imagine one of the consequences is a lack of trust in their relationship, where the next time Abraham trusts Sarah and, or asks Sarah to trust him, I can imagine her saying, oh, well, I'm not so sure about that. You remember Pharaoh? Remember Abimelech? Yeah, I'm not sure if there's much trust in this relationship right now. There's a generational consequence. We see Abraham's son, Isaac, six chapters later doing exactly the same thing, where he palms his wife off, Rebecca, to Abimelech as well. And Abimelech believes what he says until he looks out the window and he sees him fondling his sister and he realizes his wife. It's a generational thing being passed down. And as parents, uh, we need to always remember that our kids are watching, watching the way we live our lives. Another consequence of Abraham's action would be a severe loss of trust. Not only with his wife, but his reputation amongst other people would also be lost. Abimelech was really annoyed with Abraham and wouldn't trust him anymore. He lost the ability to minister to them. And how often do we see this in the Christian church? Where pastors or leaders do things that disqualify them from ministering into people's lives. They commit adultery or they um, embezzle money or they lead by manipulation. And they lose all sort of opportunity to minister into people's lives. Abraham lost the ability to minister in that place. But worst of all, he brought shame upon God's name. And so we look at this passage and there is so much foolishness in this one man. And yet God's faithfulness overcomes it all. I mean, there's massive mistakes. And as we read the passage, it's a little confusing because it almost seems like God's rewarding him. We look at verse 14. It says, Then Abimelech brought sheep and cattle and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham. And he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, my land is before you, live wherever you like. And then to Sarah, he said, I'm giving your brother uh, a thousand shekels, 12 kilograms of silver. It may seem like God is rewarding Abraham here, but obviously that's not the case. And I don't think that's a lesson for us to learn, that we can just keep on sinning and God will bless us. Because there's always consequences of our sin. And so what is the lesson? Well, the lesson is this, that God is faithful to his promises 
despite our foolishness. This chapter brings focus to Abraham's foolishness so that it can magnify God's faithfulness in the story. When you look at Lot's life, his nephew, and when you look at Abraham's life, it often gets pretty messy. I mean, the last word on Lot in the Old Testament is what we read at the end of the last chapter, where he's rolling around, drunk in a tent, sleeping with his two daughters. That's the last word we read about Lot in the Old Testament. And we can read that and we can go, man, that is an unrighteous guy. He's not righteous in any way. But then we flip the page over into the New Testament and we find in Peter 2, chapter 2, 2 Peter 2, it says this about Lot. God rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. And it's the same with Abraham. When we read this story, it's easy to see that he's not living by faith. You think this guy is living by fear more than faith, but it's not the last word over Abraham's life either. As we flick over to Hebrews chapter 12, we find a whole chapter about the heroes of the faith. And here we find this same man, Abraham, and he's held up as an example for us. Why? Because he's a man who lived by faith. God has the last word over their lives and he has the last word over our lives as well. We read this story and the word we can easily pronounce over their lives is that Abraham was fearful and foolish, not faithful. And Lot was unrighteous, not righteous. But God is the one who has the last word over their life because man looks at the outward appearance, but God judges the heart. What we see in these stories are the moments, the moments of mess, the moments of failure, the moments of fear. And it reminds us of ourselves. But in the midst of our foolishness, God is faithful to his promises. It's important to learn from the mistakes, but it's critical not to live dwelling in them. And so I want to encourage you today in Christ, as believers in Jesus, to shake off the shame, to shake off the regret, to shake off the feelings of condemnation, because the Bible says there is no condemnation in Christ. This story in the Old Testament is really a foreshadowing of gospel truth, that none of us are in relationship with God because we deserve it. We're in relationship with God because of his incredible grace and his unbelievable mercy, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So we can stand boldly in the presence of God today, knowing that despite our foolishness and many mistakes, His word over our lives, when he looks at you in a relationship with Jesus, his word is that you are righteous and loved and precious and forgiven because like Abraham, you are someone who's living by faith. That's the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, because of this extraordinary love for us, we can be saved by faith in his life-changing grace. What seemed like merely an in-between chapter, ended up being a chapter where we can see so many life-changing truths for us. Sin cripples, but the gospel overcomes. Fear cripples, but faith overcomes. Our foolishness cripples, but God's faithfulness to his promise overcomes. Let's bow our heads and we're going to pray. Lord God, we acknowledge today that every part of your word is transforming. It's there to challenge us, to convict us, to rebuke us, to encourage us. 
and to change us. And it's also there to equip us for every good work. I pray today as we consider the life of a guy such as Abraham, who got so much right and at the same time got so much wrong, Lord, I pray that we would be in a strange way encouraged, that it reminds us of ourselves, that there are many times that we try to live for you, but we make the same mistakes over and over again. Lord, as we repent of those things, we know that we can find forgiveness for those things. But we also know that the power of gospel is this, that when we accept you and rely on your Holy Spirit, we can overcome those things that have crippled our lives and we can be made new to live our lives for you, setting a path for generations to come. Lord, we're so excited about that in our families, in our lives. We're so excited about that in our community, that you've placed us here, equipped and empowered by your Holy Spirit to live for you in life-changing ways. And Lord, I pray, as we encounter people, that you would help us to reach into their lives, that they would look at us and they'd not see our mistakes, but they'd see you living in us. Lord, we know that sin cripples our lives, but the gospel overcomes. Lord, we know that fear cripples our lives. I pray today, particularly for anyone who's fearful here all the time, they struggle with anxiety. Lord, I pray today that you would remind them that you are faithful, that they can turn to you even when they're scared, even when they're worried. And they can find that faith in you can overcome fear because you're the God who can do all things. Lord, we know that our foolishness is often why our lives become a mess. Our foolishness can cripple us. But Lord, we know that you are faithful to your promises and it's not one bit dependent on how good or bad we are. It's dependent on your grace and mercy and we know that you are love. And so may we wholly trust in you. May we never trust in our own good works or the things we do, but may we put our faith wholly in you knowing that we'll stand before God one day. As we're looked upon, you won't see our unrighteousness and our mistakes, but you'll see the righteousness of your son. And we'll be able to come into your presence for eternity. That's an awesome thing. And that's the truth of the gospel. This morning, while every head is bowed and every eye is closed, maybe you're here today for the first time. Maybe you've been before, but you've never accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior. And maybe it's fear that's holding you back. Maybe it's some of these things in your life you just think, I don't know how I could move on from that and I don't know how I could leave that behind. And I want to tell you today that God can meet you right where you're at. And this morning I pray that the Holy Spirit is working in your heart to remove the fears and to remove the obstacles so that you can look and see Jesus clearly at the cross where he died in your place. When you accept Christ, all the sin and all the brokenness and all the mistakes, they're placed on him and on the cross he died to pay the price for those things so that you could be forgiven. Today, the only hope we have of eternal life with God himself is to put our faith in Jesus, his son. So today, while every head is bowed and every eye is closed, if there's anyone here today and you've never accepted Christ, but today you want to take that step and say, I don't know everything yet, but I need to know that I'm forgiven. I need to know that I'm in relationship with God. And today I want to accept Christ as my Lord and Savior. If that's you here today, or no one's looking around. I just want you to lift your hand and say, Luke, that's me. It's awesome. I see that hand at the back. That's amazing. Thank you, Lord. Is there anyone else here today that wants to join this lady and say, yep, I want to put my faith in God today. I know I can't do it in my own strength. I need Jesus. If that's you here today, you want to join this lovely lady and say, that's me. Just lift up your hand now. I see that other hand over there. That's phenomenal. Thank you, Lord. I'm going to invite all of us to stand to our feet now. Once again, that means all of us. I'm sorry, I think I put you to sleep, so I'm waking you up now. Let's stand to our feet. 
we're going to pray together. And particularly for these two ladies who just put their hand up to say, yes, I want to accept Jesus as my Lord. Today, we're going to pray a prayer with them. If you've prayed this before, let this be a reaffirmation of what you've already prayed. But if you just put your hand up for the first time, I want you to pray this with all of your heart, knowing that today, Jesus is going to come into your life and transform your heart so that you can live for him and that you can follow him for the rest of your life. And so let's bow our heads and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son. Jesus, we thank you that you died for us. We deserved it, but you paid it. Lord, we thank you that salvation is a free gift. It costs us nothing because it costs you everything. Today, I want to put my life and my heart 100% in your hands. I need you to be my Lord and Savior and my hope. Lord, forgive me for the things I've done wrong. And I pray that you'll be with me, filling me with your Holy Spirit so that I can live for you. I pray that there be no turning back. In Jesus' name, amen.